Classes in session at Dynasty U. Dynasty Podcast presents conversations from a college or university on Dynasty Pod Class with Haima Black. Haima Black live at Columbia College, Chicago in my self, uh, self-management and freelancing class. And I'm here with photographer Chris Diltz. How are you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I am good. So I invited you here today to talk about freelancing, to talk about being a creative professional, because that's so much of what we cover in this class. And let's kind of start with who you are and what you do. Give us a little bit of background about your work and mm-hmm. your specialty. Sure. So um, my name is Chris Diltz. Uh, I am a full-time freelance photojournalist and documentary photographer. Um, A good deal of my background uh, is doing political work and political photography, both for news organizations. Um, I shoot for Bloomberg. I shoot for a French uh, photo agency called SIPA, uh, but also doing internal work for uh, political campaigns, political organizations, and nonprofits. Um, In 2010, I was the uh, staff photographer for the Democratic National Committee. Uh, covering President Obama during the midterm elections and uh, working with Democrats up and down the ballot. That then moved into being the chief photographer for President Obama's re-election. Came back here to Chicago in 2011, April of that year, and staffed and ran the photo office uh, for the re-election campaign. So I had a team of photographers working under me. I was on the road pretty much full-time with the president, the vice president, the first lady, and every once in a while, Dr. Biden, who is awesome. After that, I was the inaugural photographer in 2013, and then went back to full-time freelancing after that, um, aside from a brief stint as Governor Quinn's photographer in 2014 uh, in that campaign. Um, I've worked on a lot of different campaigns. This last cycle, I staffed all the DNC's uh, major events, all the debates, as well as working for a series of nonprofits and uh, political PACs covering Secretary Clinton. And then I also was one of Bernie Sanders' staff photographers uh, in the run-up to the Super Tuesday elections. Um, so that's what I've been up to the last couple of years. Uh, uh, outside of that, though, I also shoot straight news photography for Bloomberg and SIPA um, with an emphasis sort of on cultural and political movements, um, as well as every once in a while, lots of weird financial coverage I do for Bloomberg because, you know, Bloomberg uh, has a very, very deep sort of roster in financial news. Yeah, uh, full-time freelancing, though, so, you know, I don't have an office um, outside of a desk in uh, the spare bedroom of my apartment. Uh, that's mostly full of hard drives and piles of cameras and things like that. I'm on the road probably about two weeks a month, typically. Um, like, I'm flying to D.C. on Friday to cover the Environment March or the Earth March or what's it called? There's a name for it. Climate. Climate, thank you. Yeah. Um, that's that thing that's out there. The Planet March. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm shooting that. I'm covering that in, in D.C. Um, this weekend. So that's sort of my background. Um, right on. So... Starting out, like when you were, uh, you know, before you got to all the parts where you were like working with like President Obama mm-hmm. and everything like that, um, did you know early on that you wanted to be a freelancer or was it something that you fell into? So I sort of fell into it. Like a lot of people, um, I got out of college and was really fortunate enough to, I knew some folks that were starting a magazine in Chicago. And they asked me to come in and help them with their photography program, setting it up. And of course, you know, I was like, oh yeah, obviously, I, I know how to like run a photo department in a magazine. I've definitely done that before. Like, <laughs> definitely done that before. Uh, you know, I figured it was going to be like a, a bit of a portfolio building exercise, and ended up being six years of doing internal magazine work uh, and traveling um, all over the world, shooting that. And like all magazines do, that it went out of business. In uh, 2000, I want to say 2004, uh, at which point I was like, oh my God, I, 
I've never really had a job aside from this. Uh, I don't really know how to do anything else at this point. Um, and very quickly was like, well, this is this is freelancing. This is like piecing things together. This is calling all the advertisers from the magazine and being like, hi, you remember that time we got drunk at that party in that one place? How about I do some work for you? Um, and sort of started building out of that. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So obviously I think that you know, just guessing. I would imagine it's easy to guess what the highlights of your career are, like mm -hmm. all the presidential work, yeah. everything like that. But you and I both know, like being a freelancer, for every perk like that, oh, yeah. it, it's a lot of work. So what are the challenges that come from being a full-time career freelancer sure. and what makes it hard and how do you work through that? Sure. I think I think the biggest thing for me is sort of, you know, obviously like everybody likes doing really cool, exciting, glamorous jobs where like you get to fly around in private airplanes and do cool stuff. Um, that is not the exception. 90% uh, of the work that I do, honestly, on a day-to-day, -day, like grinding it out, like making a living at this is far less glamorous. Um, you know, like you shoot stuff for internal organizations, you shoot parties, you shoot social events, you shoot fundraisers, you know, you sort of piece together a lot of different kinds of work into, you know, making a living at it. Because that's sort of it is. There's a, there's a, a, a Matt Damon movie called Rounders. I don't know if anybody's ever seen that. It's about like illegal card playing, like poker, underground poker. Um, but there's a character in that film uh, John Turturro plays, and, you know, he's sort of like, this isn't glamorous. We're not going to Vegas and making a million dollars. Like, I make like $250 a night cheating people at poker. Like, I grind it out. Like, you know, I got a kid, I got a wife, I do it. And every once in a while, you get a high roller, big stakes game, but most of the time, it's you get up in the morning and you find that, like, couple hundred dollar job you're gonna do that day, and you do it. Or you, you know, call that nonprofit, and you're like, hey, I see you guys have, like, two events coming up, do you need anybody to cover them? And, you know, that kind of work. Like, this last weekend, I spent four days shooting internally uh, for the organization, the National Urban Debate League's uh, national championship, which predominantly was me in a room with uh, high school debaters, photographing them in badly lit conference rooms as they stood in front of laptops and stared at them very closely uh, for four days. And, and it was really interesting. I learned a lot. I, I knew nothing about high school debate. Uh, very quickly picked up that they talk incredibly fast, and I had no idea what they were debating. Um, and there's like really esoteric rules, and lots of waiting for them to look up from the laptop so it looks like they're engaging. But that's four days of that. Was that job glamorous and exciting? Is it portfolio piece work? No, but my client was really happy. They really got a good value out of it. They were able to push things on social media and they had a really good presence and they've already talked to me about like doing work with them again next year, which is great. So we'll talk about um, building relationships to continue work in a moment, mm -hmm. but what do you do when you hit that wall? Because especially like I know for a lot of the students in here, you know, some of them might be graduating or mm -hmm. we're about to hit summer. And there's there's definitely times where your inbox is not getting hit or your phone's not ringing. Mm -hmm. What do you do to drum up business when it's dry? So, so and this, this is a real thing. I mean, freelancing is a huge ebb and flow. Like, for every month that you just are like, oh, my God, I've turned down, like, five different jobs and I, you know, <clears> I'm just like, I can't even get on top of the work that I've already got, you get solid months of, like, crickets, you know? And, and you have to be prepared both financially but also emotionally to deal with that. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of the, the imposter syndrome aspect of things of like, no matter how much work you've done or no matter the kind of work you've done, all of a sudden when things get slow, you're like, oh, they figured it out. I have no idea what I'm doing and they know now. Um, and that's a, a real thing, you know, that, that sort of that, that freak out moment. 
Um, what I do on those occasions, because they happen, it's pretty regular, is you look at who your big clients are, who are the people that you do work uh, with year after year that you've got personal relationships with, and you just start hitting them up and reminding, you that you're, reminding them that you are alive. Um, what I find a lot is there is a perception that if you're working a lot, or even if you're not working a lot, everyone thinks you're too busy for them. Everyone is like, oh, yeah, I saw on Instagram you're in, like, in three different cities. Like, I didn't hit you up about this job because, like, you're way too busy. I didn't, didn't want to bother you. I didn't want to yeah. bother you. You're super you're busy. Like, you're, like, thrifting at Aldi, and you're like, please, yeah. Yeah. please bother me. And, you know, and, and, that, and I hear that as well. And I also <laughs> hear a lot of, like, oh, yeah, we're going to hit you up about this. But, like, you know, we can't afford you. It's like, you can afford me. Like, trust me. If I'm slow, you can afford me. Um, and that's sort of the thing, you know, you remind people that you're there, you remind people that you're alive, you check in with those contacts and those networks you've got. Um, you start making up personal projects. You know, it's, I do a lot of like, I'm like, okay, oh my God, I have like four days off. I can like watch Netflix and like catch up on that and go gardening, or I can like come up with like a little story I wanna tell that I've been thinking about for a while, go do it, email a few people and be like, hey, I'm like doing this little piece you know, do you guys want to use it? Are you interested in it? And even if they're not, then you just make a medium post out of it and put it out there because you're putting work into the world. And as long as you're putting work into the world and creating and building audiences through that, even if it's unpaid work that you're doing for yourself, then, you know, you're going to reap a benefit of that because you're also creating a general perception that, like, you're working, you're doing stuff, you're employable, you know what you're doing, you're learning new skills. Um, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, but the slow thing is real. Like, I mean, like, there's nothing worse than, like, month two of, like, I've, I've, I've done two jobs in the last two months. <laughs> like, you know. Yeah, and, and talk about a little bit more about the value of making sure you're always creating something. Mm -hmm. Because something I stress in here is that even if you don't have, like, a huge budget for nice uh, cameras, mm -hmm. even if you don't have, like, you know, X studio or Y materials mm -hmm. or whatever you need, you can still make something so that people see that mm -hmm. you're doing things, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the biggest thing is, you know, for what I do is so much of it is storytelling based, you know, even if I'm like working internally for an organization or a political campaign or a news service, you know, I'm trying to tell a story and I can go tell that story in a lot of different ways. I don't have to break out like the big bag of all the Nikons to go tell the story. I can do that on my phone. I can do that with a smaller camera. I can do it as a video piece. I can do it as a lot of different ways. And I think a lot of it is finding stories and is thinking about the stories that you want to tell um, as opposed to the stories that get sent to you. I mean, a lot of times you know, you'll get hired on a job and you sort of your thing is like, I remember I got sent to uh, shoot footage and, and document uh, a professional paintball team's uh, run up to going to the world championship, right? And they send me out to Boston and, and like my producer's like, hey, like, no idea. You got two days in Boston, find a story. So I spent two days with these guys, and they were really captivating people. Super smart, really dedicated, very focused on this like program that they were building, and their training, and their preparing, and the mental preparation. And in two days, I found a nice little story, and I got a sense of the internal team dynamic, and I came away from that with a piece. But I wouldn't even have a sense of how to go about that if I wasn't constantly doing that on my own, if I wasn't constantly coming into environments, even when I'm not working, and looking for what's the story here, what's the narrative, who are the characters, how is this coming together? Now, you know, obviously relationships are really important, like you've mm -hmm. mentioned, and some of that is maintaining relationships you already have, mm -hmm. keeping those going. So I wanna ask how you do that, but also, how do you start a lot of those relationships? Because again, everyone in here, a lot of mm -hmm. them are at 
the early end of their journeys, they probably don't have a wide client base. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it can be intimidating Mm -hmm. when you're cold emailing or cold calling somebody. So bring us into a little bit of that process of building and maintaining relationships. FaceTime is the most important thing. I don't mean like FaceTime, like the app. I mean like actually (laughs) being in a room with people um, and talking to people and not being afraid to introduce yourself to someone. Um, Like, you know, if if you're at a social event or you're at a fundraiser or you're at a bar and someone's like, oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. I'm the deputy editor, blah, blah, blah. Talk to them. Talk about what you're interested in. Talk about your work. Don't pitch them. This is like the thing I, I, I see really aggressive freelancers and really aggressive folks that are just like always be pitching, always be pitching, always be pitching. There is something to that, but you want to develop a relationship that's based on like, oh, I think the work that you do is really interesting. This is the kind of work that I'm doing. And move that to a, almost like a peer type relationship as opposed to the like, oh my God, will you please give me work? Please, please, <laughs> please. Because again, you're going to kind of freak out an editor. I mean, I honestly like, you know, some of the best relationships with clients that I've ever made were like made at the bar. And I, I know that sounds kind of terrible, but it's true. Um, and made at a social event or made at an office party. Like it's one of those, it's, it, it, I, I think it's been helpful for me because I'm a, I'm a fairly intensely social person. I like people and I like being out and I like talking to people. So, but I, yeah, I say yes to pretty much every invite that I get to like do something. Because again, it's part of it is you know generally like enjoying company of people and making friends and stuff. But part of it is networking. Part of it is reminding people that you're alive. Part of it is like that conversation you have where someone introduces you to someone and it comes up that like, oh yeah, we've been trying to find someone to do this job in a month or so, but like you know anybody and you can be like, well actually, um, and that's a huge huge part of that building and maintaining networks. Also, don't be afraid to ask. You know, don't assume someone's going to say no. If the worst thing that's going to happen is someone is like, yeah, you know, we're not really doing anything right now. Awesome. That's great. Like, no one's going to stab you. No one's going to set you on fire. No one's <laughs> going to like, you know, I mean, the worst, the worst case scenario is a no. And if you're not emotionally prepared to get a lot of no's, then you really should not freelance. <laughs> um, 90% of your life is, is rejection on some level or another, uh, just because that's how it is because you're in a competitive environment. There's a lot of other people trying to get work. There's a lot of sort of uncontrollable things. Like you you will lose work to the cousin of the dude down the hall at the agency who is not even close to as good as you and is gonna charge more, but that's not about you. And you just have to like constantly be internalizing like so many of the decisions that clients and agencies make just has nothing to do with you. So what steps should they be taking right now uh, you know, we're here at the end of the semester, mm-hmm. we're going into summer, like, you know, if you're a student here, if you're like 18, 20, starting out, what what should they be doing at this point in their career mm-hmm. um, to prepare themselves to build that longevity? I mean, speaking, and I'm sure not everybody here is a photojournalist or yeah, yeah. photographer, I should, I video should say people. We have I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm imagining that. So I can only really speak to like what I would advise someone that does, you know, sort of media production like I do. Um, go do work. The worst thing in the world is to like have someone be like, yeah, you know, I, like, can, I, can I see some stuff? And you'll be like, sure. And then you cram for it and try to come up with something. You should just be constantly producing work. You should be having in the bag things that you've shot, things that you've done, a portfolio ready to go, writing samples, clips, anything that's ever been published, anything that's not. You know, a lot of times I find people are more impressed by unpublished work than, than work that, you know, has been out there because you know, it shows a real investment of your time and your energy into 
you know, doing things when you could be watching Netflix or gardening or going to the bar, like all of which are great things to do because I'm looking outside right now and <laughs> those all seem like great things to do. But, but yeah, like, you, you know, sort of to be ready because the, the thing that happens, and particularly in a freelance life, there's not a lot of advance notice. Uh, life is very much about like, hey, can you do this now or tomorrow? Or in 48 hours? Can you get on a plane? Can you show up at this place? Can you do this? And the ability to be very responsive to the needs and demands of unreasonable clients is what's going to separate you from other folks that want things like weekends or nights off or relationships or you know <laughs> anything like that. Not to say you can't have these, but you know the demands, particularly now in this sort of gig economy structure that we're living in, where you know what what seems completely unreasonable for a salary type job is completely reasonable in a freelance environment. Because if you say no, somebody else will just Somebody else will take the job, and then when the client calls again, they're going to remember who took the job. So I think another obstacle, especially early on, but also even, even now for, for guys like us maybe, is like negotiating rates, mm -hmm. negotiating salary. And when you're young, I, yeah. I tell them that I think there's some value in taking certain gigs if they're unpaid, if it's the right opportunity. Mm -hmm. But when you're early on and maybe you don't have that big portfolio yet, mm -hmm. although, again, you guys should always be creating things, even if just on your phone, just to have something, mm -hmm. how do you negotiate that rate early on? How do you determine what your work mm -hmm. is worth? And then what do you do when somebody says, well, can you just do it for free? That's a really good question. And it's a tough thing, and it's, it's, it's a struggle that the industry has been going through for, for a while now, particularly in terms of transparency on rates. I know like photographers tend to be really opaque about what we charge, and I think that's actually to the detriment of, of all of us that work professionally. I, you know, I try when colleagues talk to me or like need help with a pitch or just like, hey, what's, what should I be charging on this? I try to be really like, transparent about what my rates are because I think that we allow the clients and the agencies to basically force us to undercut below a manageable living wage because we're just so freaked out about not having the work. Um, I also think that anybody that comes to you and asks you to work for free, uh, they need to have a really good reason. And you should definitely ask yourself, is the person that's asking you to do free work, do they get paid? Are they getting paid to ask you? Because if they're getting paid to ask you to do work for free, something's up. Um, because you know that's, again, un an unreasonable request. Um, but it's tough because you want to do stuff. You know, I do a decent amount of pro bono work. I never call it free. I call it pro bono because then it's like, oh, I'm like helping out this non-for-profit or I'm going to do a solid for a friend. Or, you know, you even can be like, look, I can't justify doing it for free. I'm going to need to have my travel covered and a per diem. And then you just don't eat that day and you pocket that per diem. But, um, but you know, just to be like, look, like there's a value to what I'm doing. You need to take care of me at least. Um, in terms of rates, it's tough. I mean, I know it's different for writers because a lot of times you're paid by the word, or in Europe you're played by the signet, which is something super weird, which is like literally by the letter and or the spaces, which I think is fascinating that they do that in France. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, some writer friends of mine are just like, it's super weird. Like, it's not word count, it's like signet count. Um, you know, you kind of look at things in terms of, you know, the, what the market's going to bear, what you know other people are getting paid, and again, if you have a good relationship or have developed a relationship with someone at the agency or you know someone that's done work for this client before, just ask them. And I mean, I think there's a lot of resistance in freelance because, again, we're all competing with each other to a certain extent. But I think that if we're all coming in at about the same numbers on things, then we're going to elevate that level. 
You know, we're going to make sure that everybody's getting the rates that they need to get and that we've normalized that asking for money is okay. Like, I'm from the Midwest. Talking about money is really hard for me. Um, it's really, it's like the most embarrassing part of any pitch or embarrassing part of like, you know, booking a job. Like, I get really uncomfortable about that because like, you know, I'm like, I grew up in Indiana. Like, you know, I've lived in Chicago for like 20 years. Like, it freaks me out to talk about money. All my friends from Philly are just like, oh yeah, you just, the money's the first thing you talk about. And I'm like, lucky the you. Money is like, like, oh wait, before you hang up, also is this a paid job? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, but but that's the thing is like never walk away from a conversation without knowing what what kind of what what the rate is and if it is you know less than you think you ought to be paid you know then then you need to have a really substantial reason for doing it and there needs to be an understanding from the client of things like okay cool I'm going to shoot this for next to nothing or for nothing but I own the photographs and I can resell them and you do not have exclusivity to them and this is a big thing with contract work and, and with like, particularly with what I do is ownership. If someone wants to own your photos, they need to pay. They need to pay more than they're gonna wanna pay to own those photos. Because ultimately, you don't wanna put yourself in a position where you go and you shoot something and you're like, oh yeah, it's fine. It was like this interview with this guy and they own the photos. And then that guy suddenly, you know, in 10 years, you know, right. owning that photograph and being able to relicense it, resell it, use that as a revenue stream is gonna be important. Like these are the sort of the things early in my career that I definitely screwed up. Because uh, I just wasn't thinking about it. You know, I ain't thinking about copyright. You're just like, oh my God, you're going to give me what, like 500 bucks? <laughs> yeah, take them. <laughs> sure, it's good. you can do whatever you want. Yeah, whatever yeah. you want. Do you want to move into my house? Yeah, like, yeah. Here's my cat. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, it's, it's like, it's real easy to get kind of overwhelmed by like someone is giving me money to do this thing that I want to do that I'd be doing anyway. Holy, you know, right. wow. But again, you, you kind of got, and it's the toughest thing. It was the hardest thing for me is like waking up one morning and having that terrible panic attack of like, I'm a business owner. I have one employee. He's really unreasonable and hard to work with, but I have to wake up every morning and deal with him and I have to make sure he gets paid. Right. You know, and that's sort of the tough thing of realizing that like, just because you're a freelancer, just because you're self-employed, just because like you can go to work in your sweatpants doesn't mean that it's not a job and not a business and that you don't have to, I mean, I wish I had like thought of that things like this like ten years ago. <laughs> like you well, know, I like, think it's almost more of a job because I think if you, you know, for people who maybe have like a nine to five, or for mm -hmm. people who maybe work in an environment where they don't bring their homework with them, mm -hmm. at like five or six they just they're done. Yeah, and I'm done with the work I do usually around like two thirty when I'm like I don't think I can stay up anymore. Yeah, you know, like it's I think if you're a freelancer it can be hard to turn it off. So let's let's close on mm -hmm. this end before we go to sure. the student Q and A. Like, how do you maintain Work-life balance. Work-life balance and just take care of yourself emotionally it's, when you're yeah. hearing no so or all that stuff. It, it's tough. Um, I've done a couple of different things over the years. There, there was a while where I would rent a workspace or a studio space. I shared a photo studio space for a couple of years with another photographer. And so home was there was nothing work-related at home. And so I could get up in the morning and go to the office and work. <clears throat> um, if you have the money to do that, that's super cool. Uh, it's hard to say, sustain, and there's some pretty good reasons not to do it. What I do now, um, just because, you know, save money, and I don't need a big studio space. If I need to shoot something in a studio environment, I just rent it, um, is I have a separate room in my apartment that is the office. Cameras live there. The laptop lives there. When I get up and go in that room, I'm working, and when I leave that room, there's nothing else work-related floating around the house, um, and that's really important. 
uh, it's tough to draw that distinction, but I think that it's been really good for me, like sort of psychologically, to like know that like, and also uh, the room is set up so that if I look into it, I can't see any of my work stuff. It's like tucked in the corner, essentially. So again, it's like you have this sense of normalcy of like home is home, this room is work. When I'm in the room, I'm working. But the idea that like you're off work at five is just, that's not how it works, especially when you're dealing with different time zones, you're dealing with clients, you're dealing with people that are gonna wanna hit you up at eight or nine o'clock. And it's one of the, and I, I was fortunate to, working in politics, that the, one of the jokes in the Obama campaign was uh, you don't really get to shower because what if you miss an email while you're taking a shower? Like it's that, I think our average response time to an email sent in 2012 was under two minutes. Um, and you got really acclimated to that sort of, you know, like emails were texts. And if you didn't respond within minutes, like there was a problem. Um, the freelance world is similar to that because I mean, I have lost jobs by waiting 20 minutes to get back to someone. Be like, oh, I'm gonna email them back when I get home in front of a laptop and not off my phone. And I've straight up, like I, I missed a job with uh, ESPN, the magazine, because they emailed me and then they didn't hear back from me in like 10 minutes, so they emailed another photographer and she shot it. You know, and by the time I yelled them back, they'd already found someone else. And that's sort of the thing, just being very responsive. And you'll build a reputation really quickly as someone that is responsive and someone that is willing to jump on a job and someone that is like that gets back to you. So, you know, kind of it, it makes it tough to have to kind of have your phone on you all the time and to kind of have an eye on your phone. Um, and it's definitely if anybody is like in a relationship or dating, like this is one of those weird things that you need to have like a really grown up conversation with your partner about um, so that they understand that this is not you ignoring them, that the, an adjunct in a specific part of your job is uh, your availability. And your ability to be available is what allows you to make a living. You know what's funny about that is I, you know, I work from home a lot. I, I do this during the week um, on Tuesdays, but I'm only here one day a week. I work from home a lot. And so if I have like, let's say like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, where I don't have anything specifically scheduled, like a meeting or anything, mm -hmm. I put in my calendar now, like, you know, don't sign up for anything. Yeah. So that if somebody reaches out and like, oh, on Thursday, do you want to go do this? And it, and if I've got a lot I got to do, I'm, I look at that. I'm like, I have an actual blocked out reminder. Mm -hmm. that, like this is time designated for these four projects. Mm -hmm. And that's really valuable because if you work from home or you work independently and somebody says, oh, are you doing anything on Friday? If you don't have somewhere you have to necessarily be, you might think, oh, I guess I'm not working on Friday because someone else wants to do something. So being possessive of your time, I think, is really valuable. My, uh, if, if you don't have a really complicated calendar or a calendar system and something, you should start building that out now about how you track things. Every single thing, and this, I mean, again, it's like, it's obsessive. Every single thing I do through the day, lunch, when I'm making coffee in the morning, what time I have to get up, meetings I have to go to, if I'm like gonna meet my girlfriend for dinner, it's all in the calendar. Every single, because when I get hit up for something, I need to be able to look on a specific day at a specific time and know exactly what I'm doing. Um, everything is in the calendar. It's like, and I live and die by it. And it's a little weird and a little frustrating, but at the same time, it means that you don't double book. It means that you are balancing a certain amount of personal life stuff. You're like, I am unavailable for these two hours because I have a personal engagement. And you put that in the calendar the same way you would put in work. Um, and you treat it sort of like that. And again, it's, it's, it's tough, but just, just with sort of the gig economy and, and sort of the, the rate and the expectations of agencies and clients, because, you know, like their job they want you to do is the most important thing in the world to them. 
And for you, honestly, it's probably one of like seven things you're doing that week and 11 things you're doing that day. So to them, they're going to be like completely like at you on it. And you're just like, yeah, that's cool. I'm going to plug you in right there. And you are so Thursday's problem now, you know, <laughs> as opposed to today's problem. Um, but that, again, that, that allows you to maintain sort of the base of a like almost normal life. So, and again, it took me a really long time. Like I definitely burned through more than a few relationships and friendships and just, you know, general like difficulties, like kind of getting a grip on how to manage your time and how to manage the expectations of time that your clients and your friends and your, you know, significant other have on you. Yeah. Um, I want to, we're going to wrap the recording up so that we can open up to Q&A mm -hmm. with the class, but let's give it up for Chris Diltz here for really being so awesome Thanks. and taking the time. That's awesome. You've been listening to a production of Dynasty Podcasts. Find more Dynasty Podcasts at DynastyPodcast.com. For the dynamic dynasty, Dynasty Descend.